So have you ever had a relationship implode? Just crater. You know, sadly, it, it happens all the time. It happens in friendships, perhaps, right? A friendship turns sour or maybe a marriage. A marriage grows cold, right? Whether we're talking in the world and we're thinking about Kanye and Kim or whether or not we're thinking about Elon Musk and the artist known as Grimes, even Boris Johnson's own relationship with British Parliament and the British people, that finally fractured this week after news of yet another scandal broke and he was forced to resign. So friends, what do you do when a relationship begins to rupture? When the bonds of, of mutual affection and devotion, when those bonds begin to break down. You know, there's a nationally syndicated therapist who has this kind of counsel for those seeking to mend that which has been broken. And this is where her counsel begins. This is where it goes. First counsel in the midst of such a broken relationship, number one is learn to accept yourself. That's where it begins, right? Accepting you as you. Then second, she says, don't try to change them, right? They are who they are. Third, create boundaries in the relationship and learn to respect those boundaries. Learn not to transgress those boundaries. In other words, she says, don't demand too much from each other. And then fourth, learn to satisfy your needs, right? It's okay to want what you want. So friends, what do you think? Is that the way back? Are those four tried and true steps the way back to happy, healthy relationships? Well, friends, that's going to bring us back, those questions right there to our study this morning in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I invite you to turn there. Now, chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, and if you don't have a Bible, we provide them in the seatbacks before you. Uh, they're there in red, and you can find our passage on page 967. And if you're new to a Bible, as you turn to page 967, just know when I speak of the chapter number, that's the big bold number, right, the bold 7, and the verse numbers are those small superscript numbers. Now, for the past number of months, really going all the way back to January, we've seen how Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth, this church that he planted and helped pastor for years, right, that relationship is on the rocks. It seems there's a prominent member of the community that's doing things within the congregation that would even make the Corinthians blush. And instead, Paul says, they're proud, and so Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians in order to address that and other issues. And then afterwards he goes and he visits that church. And yet as he visits them, he only comes to find that they in fact haven't addressed the issue. And instead of heeding Paul's counsel, the prominent member and his posse basically shout Paul down and run him out of town. And so discouraged and defeated, Paul decides not to make, he says, another painful visit. That was the painful visit he referred to back in 2.1. He doesn't want to do that again. And instead what he does is he writes a letter and sends that letter with Titus. 
And for months now, Paul's been waiting on pins and needles, anxious of whether or not the Corinthians will receive that letter and Titus, right? Is the Corinthian church forever lost to Paul? Again, will they receive the letter? Is that relationship forever severed or is there some hope of mending it? Is the gospel to the Gentiles even at risk if they walk away from it all? How will they respond? Will God mend what's been broken? And we closed last week with Titus and Paul reuniting, and given the look on Titus's face, given the skip in his step, it's evident things are looking up. And so we pick up chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proven true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And friends, with that right there, we've completed the first half of the book. And we have to admit it, what a remarkable turn of fortunes, right? Paul's tone has gone from desperation in much of the first half of the letter. And as we close, it's turned now to delight, right? He's gone from resignation to rejoicing, Three times we find Paul use that word rejoice in verse 9 and 13 and 16. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians has been restored. And friends, what does this passage then have to teach us about how broken relationships, severed relationships, can be genuinely restored and reconciled? Well, I want us to make three observations from the text. First, confrontation is inevitable. Confrontation is inevitable. And then second, and this is deeply important, contrition. Well, contrition is essential. Contrition is essential. And third, restoration is beautiful. Restoration is beautiful. So those are going to serve as our three points confrontation is inevitable first, second, contrition is essential, and third, restoration is beautiful. 
So let's first think about how confrontation here. Confrontation is, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. We read in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Now the letter Paul is referencing here is the letter that he sent with Titus to Corinth. Right, the letter that was in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, this letter that we don't have, that didn't seem to survive. Though we know something of what was in the letter, for Paul referenced this letter back in chapter 2, verse 4, where he said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. And yet it's clear the letter did cause them much pain in chapter 2, verse 4. And we see here in chapter 7, verse 8, that it did also cause much grief. Now, consider for a moment, the Corinthians didn't have exactly what we would call sensitive consciences. All right, so we know from 1 Corinthians there was a public case of incest in the church. We know some were consorting with temple prostitutes. There were members defaming one another in these nasty public lawsuits. And at the same time, when they're gathering for the Lord's Supper, some are getting wasted. Right? We've said Corinth was a circus of sin. The problem was not there was a church in Corinth. There was too much of Corinth in the church, right? There we go. Too much of Corinth in the church. It seems very little would have offended and unsettled the Corinthians. So if there was a reality show built around church scandal, right, Corinth would crush it. So for Paul to write a letter that caused them pain and grief, friends, that must have been quite a letter. His words must have been sharp. They must have been barbed in order to get their attention. It's clear his words Well, his words wounded. They wounded the Corinthians. Because Paul understood that sometimes genuine reconciliation necessitates confrontation. It necessitates confrontation. Which means one of the primary instruments in the sanctification of a Christian is the willingness of a shepherd to confront sin. It's one of the primary means of sanctification in your life. It's the willingness of pastors and shepherds through the word of God to confront sin. Now many will find that uncomfortable, maybe even unreasonable and offensive in a pluralistic, relativistic, right, in a kind of therapeutic age like ours. But friends, such willingness to speak clearly and directly and forcefully Right? Paul sees that as a necessary expression of Christian love and leadership. See, Paul is not, as we have seen, he's not a motivational speaker whose goal is simply to empower them. He's, he's not an entertainer who's there to amuse them, nor is he simply a counselor who's going to pose a few penetrating questions and then lead them onto some path of self-discovery. That's not Paul's mission and job. No, sometimes we want pastors to comfort. We just don't want the confrontation. Sometimes we want them to advise us. We just don't want the admonishments. But friends, such person in Paul's mind, such person is not a pastor 
They're like they're a puppet, they're a pawn, or to use that British expression, they're just a poodle, right? They're pretender. Friend, if you're a Christian here this morning, but you're not a member of a local church, maybe you're visiting churches, maybe you're looking for a church, I wonder if this kind of pastoral ministry, I wonder if it attracts you or if it repels you. Is this kind of ministry, the ministry of a shepherd you think you need, or is this the kind of ministry that would make you run? Ask yourself, what do you think would have happened to the church in Corinth if Paul had not addressed them as he had in that third letter? Where do you think they would be? Friends, we just don't need pastors who will speak hard words, though. We also need friends in our lives, friends who will do much the same. So ask yourself, does anyone in your life have permission to speak hard words into your life? Are you humble enough to welcome those words? Humble enough to hear them, to heed them, and not simply to bristle at them and excuse them away? Friends, this is agonizing work that Paul is engaged in. And it's clear that he had some misgivings after sending that letter off with Titus. Right? He seemed to even regret sending it, fearful that he'd gone too far. And that's a tension in pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is often a kind of parental ministry. And, and as parents, you understand what that can be like. You understand how hard it is to walk the line between wounding a child in order to wake them from their folly and then going just a little bit too far and crushing that child or humiliating that child. You know, Colossians 3.21 warns fathers, don't provoke, you know, don't embitter, don't exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. And that can be a fine line right there. Because heartless chastisement can be just as dangerous to a child as a kind of laxity and a kind of indifference. And Paul fears he may have crossed that line. But notice that fear, it didn't stop him from writing. It didn't stop him from trying. And what motivated Paul in that third letter was not some sick pleasure in saying the hard thing. You know, some of us, frankly, get a little too much delight in being difficult. We get too much delight in saying the hard thing, in being jerks, whereas others of us, we just shy away from confrontation altogether. And both responses are unloving. Paul said in 2.4 that it was out of his abundant love and out of the tears that he wrote that hard letter and that he called them out. You know, the old pastor from the 4th century, John Chrysostom, he reflected on these verses and he said, like a father who watches his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain being inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. And it's clear that sharply worded letter hit the intended target and had the intended effect. For notice we read in verse 9, as it is, Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So notice what leads Paul to rejoice. 
It's not Paul's successes, it's not his comforts, it's not Paul's joys, it's not some promotion, it's not a vacation. That's not what's leading Paul to rejoice here. It was the knowledge that the Corinthians are again walking in the Lord. His well-being intimately tied up, wrapped up in their own spiritual well-being. Members of UBC, I ask you, does that describe you? Does that describe you? How often is what excites you and what causes you to rejoice the prospering of God's people right here amongst us? How often does that lead you to rejoice? Because I think so often our contentment, it's not found in the growing Christ-likeness of our church community, but it's often in the comfort of our own circumstances. So often, sort of in the bondage of our own private pleasures, we are in fact indifferent to the spiritual well-being of others. So let Paul's example, let it challenge you. Let it convict you. Because one of the marks, as we have seen throughout this letter, one of the marks of a genuine Christian is that they possess a genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of others. Right? As John would write, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third John 4. And friends, that brings us to our second observation. And the restoration relationships, yes, confrontation is inevitable. Secondly, contrition, Paul says, contrition, he says, is essential. Contrition is essential. So again, Paul hasn't delighted in their pain, but yet that their pain led to a particular purpose. Repentance, he says, verse 9. Repentance just being a synonym for contrition. And he refers to this repentance or this contrition. Notice he describes it as godly grief, which is translated literally, grief that is according to God. And this is where I think the CSB gives us a little more clarity, NIV even, When they translate this expression, godly grief, they translate it as grief that is, they were grieved as God willed. This is a God-willed grief. Or as the NIV says, it is a God-intended grief. And friends, that's a fascinating expression for Paul to say that they were grieved as God willed. Or as he intended. Because that means... God intends for us to grieve. God intends for us to feel sorrow over sin. Now, we often in the world tell people that to feel such sorrow over our actions and even over our hearts, as Andrew had prayed, to feel such sorrow, we're often told that's unnatural, right? Feeling some sense of grief and and sadness And despair over sin, that's in fact dangerous for our own mental health. It inhibits us, we're even told, from being our honest and authentic selves. And yet Paul says such sorrow and grief over sin, he says that's a gift. That's what God in fact intends. Which means, friend, if you're here this morning and you're experiencing some of that grief over sin... Don't ignore it. Don't reject it. Don't suppress it. Don't try to explain it away. 
Culture will try and do that for you, but Paul's saying God has given that grief to you. It's like a divine whistle. It alerts you, it wakes you, and and is warning you not to continue down that path. And verse 10 elaborates exactly what this grief as God willed, what does it look like? What does it mean to become sorrowful as God intended? For verse 10, for godly grief. Grief, as God intended, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So right there, notice, in Paul's mind, there are two kinds of grief, two kinds of sorrow in this life. And it's critical to understand this because it means not all sorrow is created equal. Not all tears are alike. There is grief God's way, Paul's going to say, and there is grief the world's way. And in any one moment, they might look similar, but they, at their heart, are fundamentally different, and they lead to drastically different outcomes. So one to salvation, he's going to say, the other to condemnation, right? The other one to death. Grief as God intended Paul says, that produces something. That produces, he says, repentance. Repentance, and that's not a word that we tend to use a lot today. Repentance is both remorse over sin, followed by a resolve to turn from that sin, and thus reverse one's behavior. So if you want to understand repentance, it's this, it's this picture of turning. So it, yes, is there remorse over sin? There's remorse over sin. There is that. Is there also a kind of resolve to turn from sin? Yes. And then there is this reversal. There is this 180. There is this heading the other direction. Remorse followed by resolve that leads to a reversal. Repentance is about not just attitude, but it's also about action. So it's not just sorrow. And this is what Paul's helping us see. Because one can feel sorrow over sin and not be genuinely repentant. So if you remember the story when Jesus meets the rich young man, and the rich young man, he wants to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, these are the commands. And the man is, is somewhat proud because he says, well, I, I've followed all these things. I've done all of these things. And Jesus says, yes, one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. And what do we read? We read that the man went away sorrowful, for he was exceedingly rich. So notice the man, yeah, he was sorrowful. That man went away with his head hung low, but it didn't lead him to change. The love of his possessions had eclipsed his own love for God. So repentance is not just sorrow. Nor is repentance simply evidenced in resolutions or remorse or regret or simply trying at more moral resolve. Repentance is a radical change in one's attitude towards sin that produces a corresponding radical change in action, right? Repentance is, you can say, belief in action. So it's, it's turning our backs, repentance is, on the illicit 
pleasures of this world so we can truly embrace God's promises. Repentance, it recognizes the allure of sin, but replaces it with the assurance of heaven. Repentance exchanges what we think we must have, namely sin, for what we know we most need, which is more of him, more of God. Repentance is not simply devoting ourselves to better behavior. Repentance is living for a better Savior. And that repentance, Paul says, that kind of change, that leads to salvation. It leads to conversion, the first time that we truly repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ. But it also leads to ongoing sanctification, right? Repentance is, is the posture of the Christian each and every day. It's the, it's the path into the Christian life. And it's the path by which we continue to walk the Christian life. Sanctification or growth in holiness. So notice for Paul, there is no salvation. There's no salvation where there is not genuine repentance. Friends, this is the part of the gospel right here that so many of us tend to forget. Or maybe we misunderstand. So often when when we do membership interviews here at UBC and just meet with folks and hear their story and we ask them about the gospel, they will often talk a lot about what it means to believe in God, to place their faith in Christ, but it's this very idea of repentance that is often missed. It's yet, though, the first command. You want to know the first command out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel? Repent. It's the first command. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, repentance is just the flip side of the coin of belief, right? And there is no faith in God where there is not also repentance from sin. And friends, that's hard because repentance forces us to acknowledge ourselves as sinners, as those who do wrong. It forces us to come to terms with the fact that we're not, in fact, okay. That our greatest problems aren't out there, but they're in here. And that's a hard message for us to swallow. We all love to blame shift, right? We inherited that from Adam. Love to point the finger. Love to see ourselves as victims in situations. And yet repentance tells us It tells you that the most basic problem in your life is you. Nobody else. And that's where the Christian life starts. Yet worldly grief, Paul says, it doesn't recognize this. doesn't lead to this kind of change. Worldly grief, yeah, sure, it can feel sorrow. One can be sorry one was caught. One could be sorry for the harm that caused someone or something, the way it hurt people. But worldly sorrow is not sorrow over the sin itself. You know, in worldly sorrow, one is not finally driven to God because that individual feels no deep-seated remorse over any actions taken against God. Right? God is not at the center of someone who suffers from worldly sorrow. God is not the one who is finally wronged. Right? They are still at the center. Which is why worldly grief is so often inwardly focused, right? It focuses on self. It focuses on what? One's own embarrassment. It focuses on one's own hurt. Worldly grief, it descends into self 
pity. In worldly grief, we feel sorry for ourselves. You know, it's how the Bible describes Esau. If you know the story, Esau sells his birthright for a meal, and then he regrets it. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews reflecting on this in Hebrews 12, 17, says that Esau sought the blessing. He wanted it back, and he sought it with tears, right? Sorrow. But he did not repent, the author of Hebrews says. So Esau, right, he can throw himself a pity party for giving away his blessing. He can weep over it, but notice what he does in the story. He goes on and he blames Jacob for it. He puts all the fault at Jacob's feet and takes none of the blame for himself. Friend, that right there is worldly sorrow. No genuine repentance. Worldly sorrow, it minimizes accountability. The aim is not in worldly sorrow to acknowledge or to atone for wrong. The aim of worldly sorrow is often just to reduce the damage to one's own image. It's what we call... uh, Maybe you've heard some of these expressions, right? A faux-pology or an unapology or a kind of sorry, not sorry. Or in the world of politics, we refer to it as the past exonerative voice, right? Mistakes were made. Friends, that's worldly sorrow. In the words of one politician, this is what one politician literally said recently, quote, If anything I said this morning has been misconstrued to the opposite effect, I want to apologize for that misconstrued misconstruction. That's worldly sorrow. That's not genuine sorrow. It's obvious there's no repentance in that statement. That's a kind of, I'm sorry you're hurt. That is not repentance. Whereas godly grief, what does it do? It pushes us toward God, not away from God. Godly grief causes us to take responsibility for our actions, just as we heard read to us, right, of David in Psalm 51. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So if you know from 2 Samuel, if you know the story of when Nathan confronted David, He confronts David with God's words. For David had slept with Uriah's wife, right? He confronts him and he says, your reign is now going to be marked by internal strife and it will be marked by a sword and by violence. And by the way, all of your wives will be given over in public to others. A humiliating scene. And what does David say when he hears this news from Nathan? Does David say, oh, but you know, Nathan, man, we love each other. Uriah, I mean, Uriah, no, not Uriah, Bathsheba. Bathsheba and I really love each other. You know, none of us were really happy in our previous marriages. And surely, Nathan, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? He doesn't want me to be upset or sad or grieve. And you know, Nathan, after all, it was a really stressful time in my life. I wasn't exactly looking for it, right? It just happened. She was on a rooftop. Next thing, she was in my room. You know, emotions kind of got the better of us. We, we just kind of ran away with it. I mean, we are consenting adults after all. You know, Nathan, by the way, these consequences, these consequences are a bit severe, don't you think? A bit over the top. I mean, it's, it's not exactly fair. I, I did all of this in secret, and now God's making all of it public, 
Right? Where's the grace of the Lord? Where's the compassion? Where's the understanding? Friends, so often that might describe us. But it's not how David responds when he hears this horrific news. David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't lawyer up and make defenses before Nathan. If you know the story, what is David's response in 2 Samuel 12? It is, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what he says. I, nobody else. He points the finger right here at himself. Sinned, he says. Not mistakes were made. Not I'm sorry someone got hurt. I sinned, David says. Right? This is not what Boris Johnson did in his resignation speech, right? Where basically he sidestepped all responsibility and accountability for what happened. No, David confesses. David comes clean and he acknowledges the one who has finally been wronged, right? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. All sin is fundamentally against him. And friend, that right there, that response in that moment, that is godly grief. Grief as God intended. Friend, ask yourself, if you profess to be a Christian, what grief most defines you? What grief most defines you? Are you quick to make excuses for what happens in your life? Or are you quick to bear responsibility? Is something always another's fault? Or is it your fault? Do you see your own fault? Are you prone regularly towards self-pity and self-loathing? Do you tend to make it all about you and are you always at the center? Or do you see how it's in fact all about God and your relationship with Him and He is the one who ought to be at the center? Does your life simply follow the same old patterns do you repeat the same old behaviors? Or is there any kind of a remorse that leads to a reversal? Any kind of lasting change? Because friend, at the end of the day, only sorrow for sin is truly profitable. It only leads to the promise. The promise, Paul says, of salvation, and notice, without regret, he says. Salvation without regret. And imagine that, friends. Imagine a life without regrets. We would love that life. We would long for that life. We go through life without regrets, right? We've talked, Boris Johnson's got regrets this morning. We thought about it. Brittany Greer has regrets right now. But there is a life possible without any regrets. And it's the posture that repents of sin. Live that life. And friend, you can die without regret. You can die without remorse. So if you've come as a non-Christian this morning and you've come here, you need to know whatever regrets, whatever remorse, whatever shame you've brought in, you can die and know that that shame has been dealt with. You don't need to go to the grave with such lasting regrets because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has borne them all for you. The good news of the gospel is that life that we live, fallen, sinful, choosing our ways and not God's ways, Jesus didn't live that way. He lived the opposite of that. He lived the life we ought to have lived, 
perfectly in the will of the Father and then died actually the death we deserve, died a sinner's death in our place, condemned, he stood so that on the cross, Jesus would bear all the sins of all who would repent of their sins and and turn to him and then he would rise from the grave as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice and he sits at the right hand of the Father so that all who believe in him and trust in him and look to him can know that their shame has been dealt with and they can die without regret. And that's beautiful. And that's the hope of the gospel. And that's what Jesus would hold out to you. So friend, if you've come and you're not a Christian, that's the choice you have this morning. You can either experience godly grief in this life or you can experience a kind of everlasting grief in the next. Which will it be? It's clear what it was for the Corinthians. Because as we go on to verse 11, Paul lists Seven fruits of their repentance. Seven ways in which their life has changed. Right? He says, what earnestness. Or you could translate that, what devotion. In other words, the Corinthian church is no longer apathetic toward Paul and toward his ministry among them. What eagerness to clear yourselves. They appear now eager to right what had been wronged amongst them. What indignation. Paul says, presumably over what had happened. They feel indignation of of how they had treated Paul. Some had amidst their body. What fear, presumably fear of the Lord now. What longing, presumably longing to see Paul. What zeal, what zeal to be reunited with him. What punishment, recall what got everyone in this situation is they wouldn't deal with disciplining, excommunicating that unrepentant individual. Presumably they executed on that. And that all demonstrates the ways in which This wayward congregation has now come back toward their wounded apostle and there has been restoration, right? Remorse that has led to resolve and a reversal. They've repented. But the reconciliation, it's not over. Yes, the confrontation, it's inevitable. The contrition, essential. Thirdly, the restoration. I want us to see it's beautiful. The restoration is beautiful because not only does Paul rejoice at their repentance but in verse 13 the second half of it 13b Paul right besides our own comfort we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all for whatever boasts I made to him about you I was not put to shame So notice right there Titus is refreshed by the Corinthians and Paul rejoices over the Corinthians because the boasts that Paul had made about the Corinthians, verse 14, well, they've been, they've been borne out. They've been proven true. And if you stop and think about it, that right there is a pretty remarkable statement. Before sending Titus to Corinth, Paul boasted of the Corinthians to Titus. That's not what we would have expected. We might have expected Paul to have bemoaned the Corinthians to Titus. We might have expected Paul to have despaired over the Corinthians or mourned over the Corinthians, but instead he boasts in the Corinthians. Now, how at that point could Paul boast in them? And why at this point would Paul boast in the Corinthians? Well, friends, it's not because he was finally so confident in them so much as confident 
in what God would do through them. Confident in the fact that he trusted God wasn't done with them. And so Paul, even in this moment, Paul continued to believe the best in them. Member of UBC, I wonder if that describes your attitude. Does that describe you? Do you choose to believe the best in your fellow members? If you hear something alarming, something maybe even a bit out of place, are you charitable as you hear it, or are you a little more cynical, maybe a little skeptical, a little like, yeah, I would have thought and expected that from that person? Because recognize a cynical, a kind of skeptical spirit, it not only doubts the, the work of God, but it actually makes the people of God, right? It makes this a miserable place to be. If that's what we think of one another, how we treat one another, the mark of a genuine Christian is that they're gracious toward their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not suspicious, right? They believe the best about them, not assume the worst of them. Does that describe you and your own relationships here? And it's interesting because Paul's boasting to Titus. And the fact that Paul has to boast to Titus and tell him about the congregation implies Titus has probably not been to Corinth before. So recall Paul, when he left with his tail between his legs, he had suggested he was going to come back and visit them. But then he changes his mind. He writes this tearful letter, this painful letter, and he gives it to Titus And he sends Titus with the letter to Corinth. So just at the time in the church's life when everything seems to hang in the balance, at just the time when Paul's own Gentile mission to the people of Achaia, when that hangs in the balance, just at the time when Paul's presence among that church seems most essential They don't get their lead pastor and planter. They get the assistant. They get the PA. And that's who Paul sends. And that's who strolls through the front door of the church. Now, if you're a Corinthian, how do you feel in that moment? When not Paul, but this guy you've never met, this young assistant shows up instead. Do you feel dissed, maybe? Maybe you're thinking, man, we're not even important enough to warrant a visit from from our pastor, the one who planted us, and instead he's sending someone else in his stead. You might feel unloved. You might feel unimportant. But friends, is Paul's absence here a lack of love? Is Paul's absence a lack of care? Now, they could construe it that way. And, you know, the reality is sometimes if we don't get the pastoral care we want and if we don't get it from the pastor we want, we might construe that as a lack of love. But Paul doesn't see it that way. And interestingly, the Corinthians, they may have been tempted in that, but they didn't finally conclude that. For notice that they received Titus there at the end of verse 15. They received Titus with fear and trembling. And that's an interesting expression because... That is exactly how Paul came to them in 1 Corinthians 2.3. He came to them with much fear and much trembling. In other words, the same posture that Paul had toward the Corinthians 
It's the same posture that the Corinthians would now have toward the one Paul sent them. Because the authority, friends, is never in the messenger, is it? The authority is in the message. It's not about the person. It is about the message that is preached, the goodness of what is preached. The comfort and the care doesn't finally depend on the worker. It depends on the word to do the work. Members of UBC, let this be an encouragement to you to receive all 12 of your elders and shepherds, those whom the Lord has given you, Ephesians 4, as gifts to his church. Let me encourage you to receive all 12 as gifts to his church. I love how Nick prayed for me during the pastoral prayer. I really appreciate it. And yet, I want you to equally feel the gift of the 11 shepherds, and now 12 in Nick, that we have. Lead pastor or lay pastor, paid or staff, regardless of who it is, they are God's gifts to you, and we want to receive them and cherish them all as gifts. Friends, at some point in our lives, a cherished relationship, yeah, that's going to flounder upon the rocks. And maybe right now you're in the midst of just such a crisis. So what would bring about reconciliation? Now, the world, as we've seen, yeah, it begins, accept yourself just as you are. And them, don't try to change them. They are who they are. And yes, we need to create boundaries. Don't try to expect too much of them. And it's okay to have needs, and we have needs and wants, and we've got to learn to satisfy those needs and wants. And that may be the wisdom of the world. But friends, that is not at all the wisdom that Paul portrays for us. It's not what he gives to us. Paul doesn't begin by saying, you know, listen, I've been reflecting, and uh, I want you to know that I've accepted me as me. And I've accepted you as you, and I'm really sorry that I expected too much from you, and I know you have needs, and let's all respect those together. That wouldn't have gotten very far. It wouldn't have accomplished what God intended to accomplish in the Corinthians. No, instead, Paul says, you know what, confrontation, it's inevitable. He doesn't long for it, he doesn't run after it, but when necessary, he pursues it and doesn't run from that either. He engages Right? We've seen tearfully, humbly, and yet clearly he simultaneously confronts sin and he comforts in the gospel. He does both those things. And yet he says, you know what, contrition is essential. We're not okay. Things do need to change. And that's a kind of godly grief and not a worldly grief. The kind of sorrow that doesn't just lawyer up, doesn't make excuses, doesn't shirk responsibility, doesn't descend into self-pity. No godly sorrow evidenced in changed attitudes and changed actions. And that will bring about a restoration, he says, that's beautiful. When we're gracious and not suspicious, when we believe the best and not assume the worst, when we approach God's word with fear and trembling, trust that word to accomplish the work. Friends, in that kind of environment of humility, of charity, of mercy, Not only can we be reconciled to one another, but that will reflect that we have, in fact, been reconciled to God. Friends, does that mark you? Let's pray.